Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with Sarah M. Saleh, author of the new poetry collection, The Flirtation of Girls, Khazel El Banat. Saleh is not only a poet, she is a human rights lawyer and is the author of a new novel, Songs for the Dead and the Living, which was published only a couple of months ago. Saleh is the daughter of Palestinian, Lebanese and Egyptian migrants, a lineage very much alive in her work, advocacy and craft. She also co-edited the 2019 anthology Arab-Australian Other, Stories on Race and Identity. And Saleh is the first and only poet to win both the Peter Porter Poetry Prize and the Judith Wright Poetry Prize. Saleh, calling in from New York for a residency before a return to Australia, joined me for an online discussion of her work. And she began our conversation with a reading from the collection. Ode to the Western Sydney train lines, a.k.a. Evil in the Suburbs. T3. Today I am eyeing out this group of exotic white people trespassing on the area. Where we split $9 Thai and Tay Tarek, where 200 languages molest each other on the platform every morning where the best tailors sew sleeves onto all my dresses and where our love was busted by the ethnic auntie news network in the parking lot, where I don't need to translate the doctor's words to Baba. It's streets, a place I cannot hide from myself, home of the halal snack packs of hijabi influencers, beards and braided chains and Nike TNs and fobs and slam poets and diehard doggies fans. A stage where I am seeing and seen, it never sleeps. T5. Souped up Subarus, the shisha cafes, catcalls and bitchy auntie commentary blot station street. Like hundreds of confessions, we make our way to the place of our worship, Fairfield Stars Palace. I almost indulge in the abundance, almost in the abundance of links and stronghold, hairspray and glitter, the money that is obnoxiously spent but also gifted. The 400 plus wedding guests, phosphoric stories all over this tacky celebration and it is ours, a stage and I am not suspect. This country tries to rid itself of us as it has done to others before but we are still here. 350,000 and counting. Thank you, Sarah. It's so evocative, be it the halal snack packs or the TNs, or especially the ethnic auntie news network. Definitely. I I say that our aunties are better at surveillance than the FBI. (laughs) And it's true. (laughs) Yeah, it's a familial understanding and surveillance that's felt goes beyond technology. Definitely. I think what I really love about this poem as well is that it sort of brings together all these aspects or, you know, a lot of these aspects of our lives that perhaps people who live in these areas and from our communities kind of will find relatable, but it's not sort of trying to present this myth of model citizenry or model migrants. It's kind of us in our like one big hot mess in this poem and the way that these threads all kind of come together as fragments, but make up, you know, the complexity of what is our lives. And so I really enjoyed writing this poem because I was able to think about all these things and sort of do it in a way that honored 
that mess and wasn't trying to sanitize or sort of whitewash or kind of present something that is perfect when we are not that. And I think that's very liberating as a poet and as a writer to be able to do. Yeah, definitely liberating. The notion of the model minority is unfortunately a persistent device, but I see in your poetry that the people and experiences you illuminate are complex, multifaceted, and much richer for that. You're not playing to those constrictive illusions some people fixate upon. I think if people are going to come to this with that mindset already, that notion of looking down or that they have their own kind of issues, I I think this might not be the kind of collection that's looking to convince them of that. I think for me, you know, those people probably need to sort of turn inward and reflect as to why they might have these views. And I think there's obviously bigger systems and structures at play, which is why art is such a beautiful, powerful intervention you know, as as a as a site of, of for these sorts of things, but also for me specifically, this collection was written not like not with that trying to convince you know in mind, not with writing to that gaze in mind, but rather as a way to kind of bring, as I said, like all these complex, contradictory, messy, joyous moments, mundane moments, lives of of myself and and people around me, the stories, the art, and to put that in this collection in a way that celebrates us for all that we are and isn't looking for acceptance in any way but is simply an assertion you know whether people like it or not take it or not accept it or not we're here I guess I suppose in the way that that last line (laughs) went you know we're here 315 counting but it's it's more than just numbers we're here fully and we're concerned with living our lives fully just like anyone else and we're not sort of doing that with only set parameters in mind, with only a reaction or a response to other things, but we're fully being transcending of those things. Yeah, the notion of being is an essential thread that runs through this collection, and not just being for being's sake, but being and thriving in the fullness of life. And I want to return to being, but speaking of the collection... Could you tell us a little bit about the title of the collection and where the inspiration comes from? I have my own suspicions regarding the title as I recognize the name from another work of art, but I imagine there are more layers to explore. Sure thing. I love that. I think that's exactly one of the most exciting things for me as a writer and a poet is allowing once the poem is written, it's almost like a kind of a pocket or a secret essay that I have let go and is out, you know, I've released into the world and people are going to have their own interactions and their own relationships and interpretations to each poem, but also to the collection as a whole. And so I think that to me is probably, you know, the best thing I can hear. And I'd be so interested to poke around and see what you thought of that title, what your interpretation is. For me, I I had a sort of double entendre intention with this title. So the flirtation of girls in Arabic is Ghazal Ilbanat. And I really wanted a title that sort of invoked a lot of my childhood memories, but even, you know, present day memories around what it is to be 
a woman and an Arab woman and an Arab Muslim woman living in these different contexts, what it is to have our lives be lived out so fully, especially in the context of uh, present ongoing colonial violence, the violence of borders in the context of migration as well or immigration the violence that we may find in our own communities, you know, patriarchy and misogyny and and violence that comes from partners as well. So women existing against this backdrop, but also women who are resisting that and subverting that in their own little ways, small subversions, and additional to the subversion, actually, again, transcending that by finding connection and love and joy messiness and mistake in their relationships with each other, in their relationships, in the sisterhood rather, how they choose to sort of live out their lives fully, be it through art or love or so on. So I think for me, the image of Ghazal al-Banat, which translates to the flirtation of girls, but is also a pun around cotton candy in Arabic, gave me that sense of it or invoked that imagery for me. So cotton candy as one definition with all of that said, and then the second being the ghazal. So the ghazal is of poetic form, people might know, and it's one of my favorite poetic forms. And obviously the collection is littered with particular poems that are informed by ghazals, but also break with the traditional form of ghazal. I really loved that I was able to bring this title in and play around with that. Okay, see, I wasn't familiar with the association with cotton candy, but what I am familiar with is an old Egyptian film from 1948 or 1949 by the same name, and only knowing that obscure film from going down rabbit holes of Egyptian things from that same period, having a specific fascination with the period, given it's when my father's parents left Egypt. But I know that that's a very, very obscure thread. I haven't, I must admit, I haven't watched that film in particular or not to my knowledge in any sort of recent memory. But growing up with my Egyptian grandmother, I was very lucky to have that kind of relationship where we bonded over Egyptian movies and Egyptian cinema, particularly the 50s and the 60s era, so black and white uh, movies. And so I have a deep love for that. Some of those references appear in the poems. And for me, it wasn't just about, you know, bonding with her, spending time with her, watching movies and and doing this thing that she loves, which I now also love. But it was about a, a way for me at this point also to learn and improve my Arabic language skills. Because at the time, you know, being in Australia and growing up, it wasn't the strongest. And so I think culture and being connected to that through movie, through art is such a strong way to reinforce your language and to understand like and pick up the nuances that can only come with people who are of that community and understand that. But it also, for me, you know, really significantly raised limitations as well, because it goes to that question of like identity and belonging because just because I can understand, it doesn't mean that I understand fully. There's limitations to my understanding because I'm still coming to this to a certain extent as an outsider. And I mean, isn't that the sort of perennial thing of the way that these hyphenated identities work, right? Some of the poems sort of contend with these questions of identity and belonging and what it means to be of these backgrounds, what it means to be constantly on the move, what it means to be someone who is a daughter of dispossessed, reconciling that dispossession in a place on land where there is ongoing dispossession. And 
I'm not sure that I necessarily have any answers for that, except to say that my relationship with my identity is complex, as you know, I'm sure with most people. It's complex. It's not static. It's very fluid. It's dynamic. It ebbs and flows. And I find it really difficult when people ask me if I feel one thing or if I'm half of this, half of that. I, I don't quantify it that way. I find that that's actually a very limiting view, but I'm trying to see that there is abundance and that I'm part of this rising wave perhaps of of people who are kind of creating new identities in a sense as well, formulating or building on identities, particularly in the context of, you know, being Arab Australian and what it means to create art that reflects our unique geographies and, and vernaculars as well. Yeah, there are so many people who are doing really fascinating stuff at the moment. The time has never felt, to me, quite as vibrant. And I'm sure there's contributions and achievements of people over many, many years. And their work, their struggles has fomented a situation where your voice, among many others who are contributing great things to art, literature, music, our cultural fabric, are coming up with novel things, so to speak, that have a vitality because it's intersecting with so many other stories that are more presently emerging simultaneously. I'm really glad that you raised that because I think a lot of people, there is a sort of inadvertent erasure and perhaps, you know, deliberate in in some senses, unfortunately, but I think it's so important as artists for me as part of my practice and ethic of, you know, practice as an artist is to really recognize the contributions of staunch Arab artists and staunch Palestinian artists and, and Muslim, you know, there's obviously, um, intersections between those identities, but yeah, recognize the artists that came before first nations artists, especially, and how they have been, you know, struggling against institutional obstacles and structural obstacles to push through. And so it's not that our art, our storytelling has just been, you know, invented overnight. It's not like we just came to these things, you know, a minute ago, we have been storytellers and we have had stories as part of our heritage for a very long time. And I Mm -hmm. think a matter of understanding like we we are not silent we are not invisible but we have been made to be and so i really just want to acknowledge the work that those staunch artists have done and have put in before us and created space for people like me to then come in and share my novel in this way and so like while i'm very cognizant and proud that i have broken some firsts i suppose i also say that knowing very well the baggage that comes with that, this loadedness, this obsession with being the first, because I don't think anything that I create has come in isolation or has just been purely because of my hard work. It takes a village, it takes people uplifting, it takes other artists, you know, creating rooms. So I really, yeah, I really wanted to just take a moment to, to acknowledge that. Of course, there's a particular poet whose presence can be felt within your work in a very particular way, a predecessor whose name you invoke in the title of two poems the Palestinian poet Muhammad al-Kurd does the same with the titling convention too. Uh, the poet that I'm referring to is Mahmoud Dawish, and perhaps for listeners unfamiliar, could you tell us a little bit about him and what he and his work means to you? Well, Mahmoud Darwish is quite a prominent Palestinian poet whose poetry you know, has been concerned with what uh, we might describe as 
resistance literature on one of the leading voices in our Arab and Palestinian canon. And so for a very long time has been the definitive and not the only, but one of the defining voices of writing poetry uh, that speaks to the ongoing Israeli occupation of Palestine, ongoing colonization, but that also speaks to identity and politics and belonging, as well as love, love for country, love for land, love for each other. So Definitely for me, and particularly given the era in which Mahmoud Darwish existed, it's certainly not a coincidence that he is as relevant as ever because these issues that he almost not only wrote about and responded to, but he sort of had the foresight to see have really just cemented themselves. You know, the occupation is still ongoing, colonization still expanding, and we're seeing you know, the peak of that perhaps or the intensification of that a moment at this point in time. But this certainly hasn't been something that just happened or just started with, you know, what we saw, of course, on October 7. This has been ongoing for 75 plus years. So I think to have this poetry at this point has been, and for people to be able to access it, has been so important because it allows for Palestinian identity, memory, storytelling to be asserted to be recognized and acknowledged in a time where there are entities, including the colonial entity that is invested in our erasure, that is invested in us having our culture and identity erased and removed and forgotten. This poetry, I think, and Mahmoud Darush's poetry really speaks to that and allows us to be able to remember in the face of people who want us to forget. Completely. And these notions of being, existing, forgetting, they are woven into your work in essential and subtle ways. And like Darwish, you have these short turns of phrase that have a powerful impact, like silence in a place is the same as not existing, and they expect us to not exist. Or I must have missed the grammar lesson then, that which you think you possess first possesses you. And you acknowledge Darwish with a quote to close out one of your own works, writing, I'll die like our trees, standing up. Thank you. It was a very deliberate choice, of course, to end this collection on that line and then on that last line, which is a very overtly borrowed from Mahmoud Darwish's famous poem. And I think for me really speaks to, you know, it's so important to have these intertextual references. And I really wanted to also, um, again, in this moment, but I also really wanted to pay homage, I guess, to Mahmoud and to many other poets who have influenced my writing and continue to influence my writing in so many ways and those intersecting identities. Because, you know, while Mahmoud speaks to the themes that I've just mentioned, maybe not so much the genderedness of these issues. And so I've obviously got a lot of influences on that front too, um, First Nations poets and, you know, African-American poets that I've also pointed to throughout the collection that have been very formative in, in shaping my poetry and my writing as well. So I really wanted to be able to yeah, have them included and honor them because I, again, I don't think any poetry or artwork is created in isolation, but also I think a lot about these lines and how they speak to me and how to build on that or how, how they might shape my experience and giving shape to what is sometimes shapeless or nameless. Mm. You point to and acknowledge Edouard Glissant and there's an overlap in what you're examining, what you're looking at. But it's not as if these ideas are presented in an inaccessible manner. There's mystery and craft there, so the reader must unfurl these things, be it location-specific, like Palestine. But they are there for the reader to find. They're not disguised behind like mere illusory means. 
this is like it's eminently readable. You know, I'm really glad that you bring that up. It's so important to me that poetry be accessible. I think poetry has always been an art form that is for the people. And whilst there's an array of poetry and perhaps particularly in our curricula, poetry that might not always be accessible to people or relatable to people because it's been for a very long time quite Eurocentric, I think it's really wonderful all our voices be included and be part of the literary landscape in all these different ways and for us to be asserting our poetry and asserting our story in a way that is accessible in a way that is relatable in a way that still doesn't compromise on the quality on again on the lineage that we come from we come from artists who are incredible global you know globally renowned poets who are poets who set the agenda in some ways like Mahmoud Darwish did cultural agenda at the time and in, again in some ways still do the other thing that i really i'm so glad that you pointed to and this is something i strongly believe you know this this poetry collection isn't necessarily about palestine for example um which seems to be a hot topic at the moment but palestine is almost you know trails throughout as a haunting almost in in a lot of these poems and so for me i can only write to and speak to my subjective experiences my intersections and and so on and i want to be able to do that as an artist and a poet in the best possible way and write poetry because i love writing in the best possible way having said that i also think to go back to the thought of of palestine for a moment it's not the exception you know i'm not the only person we are not the only community that is dealing with this colonial violence again obviously being in you know on stolen land we see that every day so the reason there are responses or works or influences like that of glissons is because it shows that you know we aren't the exception in any sense but actually i feel empowered and emboldened fortified in drawing parallels and finding you know strength in other poets other artists and their works and their responses to and the way that they have resisted using art and other means the way that they've created and crafted and resisted that kind of violence and erasure that we're speaking to so i think for me that's definitely one of the things that i'm you know i'm really glad that you know resonated with you as a reader yeah it certainly did for me and perhaps more than i was expecting and not in a negative way to put you down in any sense not at all more so in the sense that i felt i needed it really or had been waiting for it perhaps i've become accustomed to work that doesn't do that and that's become a norm troublingly so especially over the last month and a half in particular looking at the ongoing conflict in gaza and how it might sound strange to say given the extremity of the conflict certainly it would be absurd you know to think that art or poetry can end what's going on i say you know palestine doesn't need us doesn't need the poets but the poets need palestine in a way the artists need palestine and i i definitely stand by that but i also think there is a role for artists and poets to be able to you know name what's going on to articulate it and to also present alternative futurities where you know visions of of liberation and you know coming together and putting name and language to thought and moving people into action and and being able to have a sense of what it is that we're fighting for and what it is we're trying to build so it's not always just concerned with dismantling and destroying things because artists actually build things poems are you know they're building blocks in a way so that is what i really 
hope for. And if, you know, people are going to read this collection in that way, then that's, that's what they're bringing. There is a role for artists to play. And I think that sometimes I wish that I could just be a poet and write poems for the sake of it, for the sake of creating beautiful things and leave it at that. But it feels at this point in time, disingenuine and, you know, intellectually dishonest to pretend that the world isn't, or at least my worlds aren't going up in flames, so to speak. And so it would be almost you know, what James Baldwin refers to as a burning building. And we're going to pretend like we're not sitting in one. I can't ignore it. And therefore, a lot of my poetry engages with that or is is about that and inspired by that. And it is my responsibility to be able to write to these things because it's all I can think about. But writing to them in a way that, again, honors whatever I'm writing about, just know that I will honor the subject matter and and I will try to do it in the best way possible. I suppose that the way that any artist wants to write to their best capacity. And also where I am writing about other things, whatever they may be, relationships, love, you know, my favorite ice cream, you know, food group. I feel like whatever I'm writing about, I'm going to make, you know, damn sure that it's the best poem that I can create. And so I think that is really the main work of an artist, right? To be able to do that to the best of their ability, but also have a role and understand our privileges and our responsibilities and have a role in articulating what is going on in era. Artists have always been the most progressive and the most luminary, visionary in any society. And so it's no accident that usually they're the ones that are persecuted and, you know, dictators and other despots will go after artists normally alongside journalists and other sorts of truth tellers. Palestinian poet Najwan Darwish calls poetry the daughter of history. And I often think that poets are the best historians and archaeologists excavating these things. So for me, that's certainly one of the biggest, I think, challenges, but joys, invitations, thrills in writing as a poet. And I think I'll end on this just to say I find it quite maybe distressing, but also unsurprising that I, you know, I was invited to read a couple of poems a few days ago and I chose poems ruffling through the collection and wanting to pick. I found a couple of poems that were actually about historical events, um, such as the Nakba, which is the 1948 dispossession of Palestinians by Israel, you know, from Palestinian land. And reading this poem, I thought to myself, this could literally have been written about what's going on right now. And there were a number of poems that had been written that are in this collection that have been written, not this year, even like last year and the year before. And they are so relevant to the to the time right now. And, and for me, that just speaks volumes, really. Absolutely. That was overshadowing so much of the work. And that made this such a resonant piece to read. And it made it a really beautiful piece of work to read for the soul. Perhaps the best thing to read in the worst possible circumstance. I hope that's worth something to you. That's such an honour. And also as an artist, I'm very heartened by it because, you know, while I'm happy that people are coming to this and taking an interest and seeking out more, you know, Palestinian literature broadly, our stories, our voices, that obviously gives me much joy. I also despair over the reasons. But I think what you said around being able to take this as an invitation and to keep going beyond it 
is, is, yeah, is the best that one can hope for. So it's literally, you are embodying why I want to be and continue to be a writer and an artist. So thank you so much for saying that. I know, of course. It was my pleasure to read it. So thank you. Perhaps to illustrate this collection further for us, would you like to read another poem? So this um, poem was actually recently shortlisted for the University of Canberra's Vice Chancellor's Poetry Prize, which was, you know, a speck of good news amidst everything. So I, I would love to share this piece. It's called All the Places My Father Lost His Faith. My father lost his faith at the stale fringes of the brown carpet in the apartment. At his 15-hour shifts, but always made it to bedtime, tended to us with his tales of Sinbad the Adventurer. My father lost his faith at Camp David, at the cold peace, at Abdel Nasser's pan-Arabism eroding. My father lost his faith at my grandfather's goodbye, begging us to go somewhere safer. My father lost his faith during delayed takeoff. He missed my grandfather's death by an hour. My father lost his faith in a country of men. He cried with the love reserved for son when all he had were daughters. My father lost his faith at the cafe, longing for the kind of kushari black tea that bathes each rib. My father lost his faith at his accent, scratching its way out of his multilingual throat at F-tops, at Burgur, at 100%. At the rejection letters that came in the dozens, at his degree he pulled out like a birthmark, a covenant, an eleventh finger, all the generations of men before him in the folds of that paper. My father lost his faith at my 30th birthday dinner. Red velvet and his leukemia diagnosis delivered that day. At the hospital where the nurse kept missing the vein, his arteries recoiling with each tap. My father lost his faith at the windowless rooms, resplendent rows of pokies calling, a culling of fathers everywhere. My father lost his faith when we lost the house, an immigrant's downfall. Our last night in it, my father cried. His cries, little lonely fires. They cling to me like a legacy. I should have cut him in half, see what's eating at his rind, what parting of seas sutured him together, his want for a life of more. I think I was terrified of seeing him then. It would have been my first lesson in loving something that stopped knowing how to love me in return. Thank you, Sarah. It's one of my favorites from the collection um, for entirely selfish reasons. It made me think of my own father, too. I'm glad to have heard you read it. There's so much that you evoke of this man, this inner life and way of being in the world, the longing, the loss but the vividness of the humanity in this man, most of all. I want to congratulate you on this book of poetry and on your novel, released not long ago, too. 
accidental alignment when both the collection and the novel, it was decided that they were coming out in the same year. I was like, who do I think I am? What did, what did I just do? <laughs> Decide just like releasing books uh, as a hobby. But um, wanted to say, I don't know why, but I had a feeling... I, di- I didn't call that that would be your favorite poem, but I had a feeling that you might really enjoy it, which is why I read it. So I'm yeah, very glad to hear that it resonated and it's not selfish at all. That's exactly what poetry is meant to do. It's meant to move people and transform people. Certainly. Uh, Sarah, I want to thank you for joining me in conversation and on behalf of Readings to express thanks for your work. There's a lot of us keen and willing to support work like yours in bookstores to help it reach broader audiences in our communities. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. It does. It definitely means a lot, um, especially at this time, but even just broadly as an artist on the scene to have that solidarity and to have that love from people, uh, you know, from, from people who are at the forefront of doing, you know, this kind of work. So yeah, it definitely matters. Thank you. The Flirtation of Girls, Hazel El Banat, is available via all reading stores and from our website. You'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.